a great God and loving Heavenly Father. Your words alone have the power of life in them. So we ask that through your words, you might grant new life. You might remove scales. You might soften hearts. And Lord, you might answer the prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to see more clearly and to know more fully what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the span of only 10 days, felt long in one hand and short in the other, our family had once again tasted the brackish waters of life east of Eden. Once again, the fresh water of joy and excitement had mingled with the salt water of sorrow and suffering. When I found out that Ashley was pregnant again, I went through the five stages of shock and excitement and stoicism all at the same time. And what ultimately stabilized me was knowing that by having six children, I would reach the pinnacle of Presbyterian productivity. <laughs> but it was, it was still shock and excitement and stoicism mixed together. And then and we shared the news with our kids and the exuberance of their joy helped to decrease our shock and increase our excitement. And then this chain reaction repeated itself when we shared the news with you all, our church family, and that this was so sweet and helpful to us as we were kind of more shocked than excited. And then comes the salt water, the sudden, sharp, unwelcome turn on Monday. In one moment, we went from enjoying good food with good company in the backdrop of God's beautiful creation to finding ourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death. As the ultrasound technician told Ashley that she was experiencing an ectopic pregnancy and that we needed to go to the emergency room right away. And it seems like in the next moment we're sitting in the emergency room and the doctor is saying those words that no one wants to hear. There's nothing we can do, you need surgery. And although the flow of events that led us into the valley of the shadow of death in those 10 days were unique to us, I am sure all of you could recount your own stories of how you have had similar experiences of walking into that valley and having to go through it. It's in that valley that we come because trouble or trial or hardship or loss comes on us unexpectedly. And it is a valley that no one wants to travel into if given the choice. And yet, given the realities of life, it is a valley that none of us can avoid at some point in time. Which begs the question, how can we endure such a dark valley? Who can sustain us when we have to walk such a path? And I think the answer is found in part in this story from the life and ministry of Jesus in John 11. And it teaches us this. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He alone can sustain us when we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He alone is the anchor that upholds us. He alone is the comfort that can keep us. He alone is the hope that can sustain us in such a place. And so I want to unpack that by looking at four truths that we get from this story in the life of Jesus. The first is this. We see that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the sovereign purpose of Jesus is our anchor. In our painful trials, 
in the face of our own grave, there is only one sure and steady anchor, and that is knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that he reigns and rules and works all things for our good. Well, as the story of this uh, situation opens, John fills us in on the current situation going on with Lazarus and the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. Look at verses 1 to 3. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So from these opening details, you can tell two things. One, this illness is not your everyday average common cold. This is serious. This is life-threatening because you would have to travel quite a distance to where Jesus is near the Jordan River from Bethany to get this message to him. And you can gather the special bond between Lazarus and Jesus because the content of the message is very short, very succinct. Lord, he whom you love is ill. We don't know all the details of their friendship, but we assume that there's a special bond between Lazarus and Jesus because Lazarus was probably part of a very small group of people that openly supported Jesus, that opened their home to him and had fellowship with Jesus despite the cost, the growing cost at this point. So how is Jesus going to respond to this message? Well, here's his verbal response in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So if you're the messenger who has made this journey to say this message, who hears this from Jesus, telling it to Mary and Martha, you are breathing a sigh of relief. When Mary and Martha hear this message, they are relieved. Why? Because you've already heard and maybe even witnessed at this point, Jesus turned water into wine, heal the dying son of a Roman official, make the lame to walk, give sight to the blind. In fact, one of the themes thus far in John's gospel has been Slowly and surely, people are seeing that Jesus is doing things that only God can do. And people are starting to catch on. And Mary and Martha are some of those people. But that sigh of relief is very short-lived because look at what Jesus does in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. He hears the message that the one whom he loves is ill, He says that this illness is not going to lead to death. And then, as it were, he gets on his Airbnb app and he extends his stay two days longer. The logic does not line up. Lazarus is deathly ill. Jesus loves Lazarus. Therefore, Jesus stays two days longer. Wouldn't you think the reaction, logically speaking, would be just the opposite? Shouldn't it read... Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill and he girded up his loins and he sprinted to Bethany where Lazarus was. But that's not what it is. You see, from our perspective, trials are not only very inconvenient, they're extremely uncomfortable. They're painful. They're perplexing to our faith. And when it seems that God is delayed in resolving or removing the trial, questions start stirring in our soul. How long, O Lord? Why me? What are you up to? Won't you do something about it? And then right on the heels of the questions comes the doubts. Does he really love me? Is he really good all the time? 
Can he really do something about it? Is he really in charge? Can you imagine being in Mary Martha's shoes during that two-day wait? The message has come, Jesus should be there, and you're waiting and you're waiting. He said he loved Lazarus. He said the illness wouldn't lead to death. Why isn't he coming? It doesn't take that long to get here. But in the midst of our trials, we must remember that God has a purpose for them that is often different than ours. Whenever we face trials or hardships, our, our purpose and our ambition is pretty cut and dry. Make it stop and make it go away now, whatever it takes. We are eagerly looking for the first exit sign out of the valley of the shadow of death. But Jesus brings us into that valley to teach us and grow us in ways that would not have happened if you would have just left us lounging on the shores of comfort. As one poem put it, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. It is in that valley, through our trials, that Jesus is working on us, in his sovereignty, uncomfortable grace. He is bringing us through something we would never have wished to go through so that he can work in us something that we would never have been able to cultivate and produce on our own had he not brought us through that. They have to remember the sovereign hand that leads us through that valley is a hand that was pierced for our sins, that still bears the scars of how he suffered for us. And that hand that was pierced for our sin is too loving and too wise a hand to needlessly and purposelessly lead us through such a valley. And when you know that, it, it, it changes your prayer in that valley. It doesn't necessarily remove the prayer, Lord, remove this trial. But it might add to it, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, teach me in this valley. And even in the recent valley that we were in, I was reminded that in my moments of pride, I think to myself, the church really needs me. What would it do without me? And then in that moment, just being honest, I realized how much I need the church, how much we need the church, and how beautiful it is to be part of a community that when you are in need, it is there to meet it in abundance. And that's what we learned. What is the Lord teaching you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. One thing he is saying is that my sovereign purpose is your only anchor. The second lesson from our passage is that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the divine identity of Jesus is our hope. So we move to the second part of this story. Jesus has made the journey to the village of Bethany. After his two-day delay, in verse 17, we get an update on Lazarus. Look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now this this four-day period is very significant and it gives us a subtle clue into the purpose behind Jesus' delay. There was a belief among the Jews that the the soul of a deceased person would hang around the body seeking an opportunity to reunite body and soul. But after three days, they believed that when decomposition started to set in, the soul would depart and leave the body. So they believed that on the fourth day, death was final and irreversible. It was at that point that nothing could be done. It was on the fourth day 
that the emotions of the funeral attendants were said to have turned from grieving to weeping. And it's on this day that Jesus has purposed to arrive at the funeral of Lazarus. In his wisdom, Jesus knew the greater the challenge, the greater the miracle. The greater the miracle, the greater the strengthening of his followers' faith. And the greater the strengthening of his followers' faith, the greater the glory abounding to his father. So at this point, Martha approaches Jesus. She speaks words in which grief and faith are mingled together in verses 21 and 22. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. You can hear the tension in that statement between grief and faith. On the one hand, Martha is grieved. Jesus, why weren't you there? Where were you? We sent word. On the other hand, Martha actually believes that had Jesus been there, he could have done something about it. They know he has the power to do the works of God. They know he could have spared her brother. And Jesus takes this opportunity to comfort Martha by speaking about the resurrection. And at first she thinks it's, it's just kind of the general way of her of him comforting her in this moment. But he's, he's getting to something very specific. Because Martha, like most Jews, she believes in a general resurrection that will take place sometime in the distant future. She has a sense, as, as most of us do, that death is an intruder, it's an enemy, it's an unwelcome guest in this world. And she has a general idea that God is he's going to do something about it. But she doesn't quite know how or when. That's as, that's as full as our understanding of resurrection goes. Little does she know that Jesus is about to rearrange and turn upside down everything she's thought about life and death and the resurrection. She's thinking very generic, distant, far off terms, and Jesus gets very personal. He gets very specific and very imminent in verses 25 and 26. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? With this declaration, Jesus is pulling back the curtain even further on his divine identity, the glory of who he is. He's saying to her, you're staring God's solution to the problem of death right in the face. You are looking right at the hope of all future renewal. You are looking at the one who alone has the power of life, who alone can triumph over death, the one who alone can make all sad things come untrue. The one who can say goodbye to goodbyes. It's only found in me. What Jesus is saying is if we'd have true, durable hope in the valley of the shadow of death, we must know who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. He alone has the power to overturn death. He alone can make all sad things come untrue. Do you believe in me? He's saying to her. Many people, when they face trials and the reality of their own mortality, they try to face it in a number of ways, either by denying that it's happening, by trying to defy the fact that it is happening, or to somehow conjure up positive thoughts that they've been a pretty good person and so that whatever is awaiting them, they're going to get the good end of the bargain. In our culture, we do not like to talk about death. It's probably more than religion and politics Around a dinner table, you cannot talk about death. It trumps those two. We want to deny it. 
We want to defy it and we want to distract from it. And yet, it is an unavoidable reality. It is one that you can deny all you want and yet it comes. It's one you can try to defy with live strong bracelets and I can beat this attitudes and yet it comes. And it is one that you can try to console yourself with positive thoughts and yet it comes. Because denial, defiance, distraction, they have an expiration date. Positive thoughts, willpower, a shabby pile of good works are no match for such a great enemy. If that is your plan, you need to know you are facing an enemy whose power you cannot defeat and in eternity whose suffering you cannot fathom. But Jesus is saying, if, if you know me, because no one comes to the resurrection except through me. No one experiences life, which is truly life, except through me. Saying, if you know me, death will be the funeral of all your sins, all your sorrows, all your afflictions, all your temptations, all your troubles. And it will be the resurrection of all your hopes, all your joys, all your delights, all your comforts, all your contentments. That's what Jesus is saying. It's only when we cling to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, that we have a durable hope in the valley of the shadow of death. Thirdly, we see in our passage that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the loving compassion of Jesus is our comfort. So in this third section, before Jesus performs a miracle, we get a window into the emotional life of Jesus and we get to see how he feels about death and the grief it causes his own heart. Verse 32 Lazarus' other sister, Mary, falls at Jesus' feet and echoes the same words that her sister spoke just moments before. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And after hearing this, Jesus turns and he surveys and he sees all the grief, all the tears being shed by all in attendance. And here's how it made him feel. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he says, can I see the site where they have buried him? And he goes to that site where the tomb is laid, his friend Lazarus, and we get one of the shortest and most profound verses in the scripture. Jesus wept. So in the sight of his friend whom he loved, Lazarus, whom he is going to raise from the dead, he does not look at the funeral attendants and say, knock it off, stop crying. Don't you know what I'm gonna do? Don't you know who I am? It's not that bad. Isn't it well with your soul? No, in the face of death, the Son of God is not stoic. Instead, he himself is overcome with grief to the point of weeping. On the fourth day, he's come to the funeral, not just to perform a miracle, but himself to join in the sorrow of those who are weeping over loss. This is a wonderful picture of the heart of our Savior toward us. The one who is going to wipe away all our tears is himself the one who weeps with those who weep. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is the compassionate companion in our suffering. His heart is so knit to his peoples that we can call him a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. He is no distant, disinterested deity who has nothing to deal with our infirmities and our sorrows. He has tasted the bitterness of trials. He has tasted the loss of losing someone he loves. 
In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis helpfully portrays the sympathy of Jesus in the story, The Magician's Nephew. Towards the end of The Magician's Nephew, Diggory, the main character, finally gets an audience with Aslan. Diggory has been wanting to speak to the lion because his mother is deathly ill and he thinks, I think the lion can do something about it. As Lewis writes it, a lump came in Diggory's throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out to the lion, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? After blurting this out, Diggory lifts his head to look the great lion in the eye. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Only you and I know that in this land. Let us be good to one another. In the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have a disinterested, distant savior. We have one who has been there, who has walked through it, who has gone to the other side, whose compassion is our only comfort as we have to walk through it ourselves. Finally, we see in our past is that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the conquering power of Jesus is our strength. So we come to the climactic scene of this story. Jesus not only declares that he is the resurrection of life, but he's going to demonstrate it for all those who are witnessing. His tears of grief have been wiped away, and now he's ready to perform the work for which he has come to this funeral. He starts in verse 39 by asking for the stone to be removed from the tomb. Martha responds by saying, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Decomposition has said it. It's final. It's irreversible. What are you doing? She has not yet fully grasped who Jesus is or what he's up to. She's still thinking like the rest of the attendants. There's nothing that can be done anymore. So Jesus reminds her in verse 40 why he has come. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus offers a prayer of thanksgiving to his father. And he stands before the open tomb of four-day dead Lazarus. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. And simply in response to his voice, one who sits in the tomb dead for four days, who has no ability to obey any directives, walks out of the tomb. In verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So in this miracle, Jesus once again reveals the glory of God and shows that he is equal with the father in glory. This is a case of like father, like son. At creation, the father said, let there be light. He speaks into the dark nothingness with his words and there was light. And now in redemption, the son says, before the deadness of the tomb, let there be life and there was life. The father and the son both have the power to speak into existence, something from nothing. At creation, there was the dawning of the first day when light and life sprang into existence, when all was as it should be. And now in Jesus, with this miracle, we're seeing the rising of a new sun on a new day. 
in which Jesus is demonstrating that he is coming to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In this miracle, Jesus demonstrates that he is Lord over the grave, the one who alone has the power over death, that one enemy that no one has yet defeated. At the voice of Jesus, even the grave must obey and yield up its occupants. In fact, Jesus has such authority over the grave, had he not specified which occupant he was calling out, all the graves of all time in all places would have yielded up their dead to him. In witnessing this miracle of a magnitude that had never seen before, the crowds were left wondering, what is this man going to do with such power and authority? Some were excited because this means goodbye Rome. Others were terrified because it means goodbye our throne. And yet no one anticipated that Jesus would later, in a matter of weeks, willingly yield up his power and authority to be crucified in weakness on a Roman cross. That he, who stood before the tomb of his four-day dead friend and called him out, would soon be on the precipice of his own tomb as he hung suspended and tortured. The one who called out Lazarus, come forth, bringing life to the dead, would soon call out on a Roman cross, it is finished, and yield his life up to death. That is the great miracle of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is where his glory shines in resplendent majesty as in no other place. When he calls out, it is finished, it is a greater miracle than Lazarus come out. It is finished. All the wages of our sin have been paid. It is finished. All the demands of divine justice have been satisfied. It is finished. All of the claims of death and hell have been revoked because of Christ. And three days later, Jesus emerges from the grave in glorious victory. His resurrection is the keystone, the cornerstone of all of the Christian faith. If Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied, for we are still in our sins. And yet, his resurrection is the confirmation of all of his predictions. It is the amen at the end of all of his promises. It is the guarantee of all hope. And most importantly, the resurrection of Christ is the exclamation on the end of that sentence which he cried from the cross. It is finished. On this side of eternity, to know Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, does not mean that you will never have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As much as we would, we would love that, we would love to say, because Jesus went through it, that means I don't have to. Jesus is going to remove all of this from me, and yet, in his sovereign purposes, that is not what he has decided. But his victory over the grave does mean that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have an anchor to hold us in his sovereignty. We have a durable hope in his identity. He is the resurrection and the life. We have compassion to comfort us and we have strength in our weakness because he has defeated the grave. So now Jesus' words to Martha reverberate to you this day. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.